You are now listening to the number one podcast. You have been digital interrupted. I am digital. Oh, I guess I'm going to go on the speaker. Are we good on this? I don't need the AirPods. You probably don't. No, I think you're fine. Is it recording on your end? What does it say here? It's, it's supposed to say recording. Did it say like, yeah, it's, oh, okay, okay, I, I got you. All right. All right, so I'm just going to give it a count off and then we'll just start on up and then we're, we're good to go. So, yeah. is my eyeline good if I look at you? Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, like I had to pull my screen down, my like, because behind my camera in order for me to go like eyeline right that. So, it's like, it's so weird because I feel like I'm not, but the, the when I'm cutting, I'm cutting back and forth. You'll be at full screen every time you talk. So, cool. yeah. All right, so. Here we go. All right, all right, guys. So welcome to another episode of Digitally Interrupted. So on this episode today, we have a, I'm gonna call him a special guest because you a lot of people may have heard of him. You guys may have seen him on ID Discovery. He had a documentary slash show. We're gonna, and it's called uh, Murder in Mansfield. So we have today, Collier, I'm saying that right, Collier? Landry. Yes. Yep. So um, if you can, um, you know, for people that may not know you, can you just introduce yourself just a little bit to the audience and let them know who you are and, you know, what's going on with you? Absolutely. So uh, my name is Collier Landry. I'm a filmmaker based in Los Angeles. I am most known for creating a film called uh, Murder in Mansfield, which is directed by two-time Oscar winner Barbara Koppel. It is about my life story, which when I was 12 years old or 11 years old, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night on New Year's Eve and I heard two loud thuds. The next morning, my mother was missing, but I knew that she was no longer alive. Um, my father said, oh, mommy went on a little vacation. Uh, she was a missing persons case. I kept saying my mother is dead. Only one detective believed me in my little small town. And together, he and I started piecing together the whole story. And 25 days later, they dug my mother's body up from underneath the house that my father bought for his mistress. I then uh, was thrown into the foster care system. I testified at trial, at my father's month-long trial against my father and effectively put him in prison because I was the only witness because I heard the murder happen. Uh, I have, so I made this film to, first of all, honor my mother, but to bring attention to the consequences of violence and ancillary victims that, that become the collateral damage of violence and how that impacts the world around us is something I've always been passionate about. And it was a real honor to be able to make the film. And I set, the, set out to make the film, you know, change my life and impact somebody else. And like I said, honor my mother. And I've traveled all around the world. It's probably been in over 60 film festivals. I've done a TED Talk. I have, uh, you know, been, have my own episode of Dr. Phil. Uh, numerous publications from USA Today to Esquire to the New York Times have covered this film and uh, it's impacted thousands of people. And it was, it's a gift because as a filmmaker, this was the essential part of my journey in coming to Los Angeles and to be able to see that fulfilled and then impact so many people is probably the most rewarding thing I've ever done in my life. So That's- there it is. That, that's that's a mouthful that's a lot that's a lot there that you know i'm definitely going to like try to break down for the audience because you know i know they heard that and they're probably like 
what what you know they're trying to catch up to everything that you're saying so i'm gonna slow i'm gonna just slow it down just for them just for a little bit um let's let's start with the the early childhood you know like i i had the opportunity of watching the film from a filmmaker standpoint i wish and i hope that i will one day make a documentary on my life just with that clarity and the way you guys broke down the whole case like it was amazing i loved it i appreciate it from the filmmaker standpoint and as a person who's also had their uh, parent murdered my dad actually was murdered when i was three so i related with just the concept in itself i couldn't relate to the story itself but just the content that was provided and the things that you went through as a child and just showing that it's deep and i definitely commend what you did as far as standing up for your mom when she couldn't yeah so you know uh just like i said the content you know and i like i commend you for that and everything that you did with that story it was it was crazy and um i want to talk about the early childhood though because even though we you know even though you've mentioned the bad part of your childhood i want to talk about the great times though let's talk about the good times you know the times that you do that you can look back and smile on you know because you did mention in the movie i don't want to you know i don't want to be the one to try to tell your story of whatever i saw it because you lived it and I also want people to go check it out. It's available on Hulu. Is it available on any other streaming platforms? Yeah, Amazon and Investigation Discovery. Okay. So if you have a cable subscription, you can call it up on like Investigation Discovery on their okay. app or whatever, uh, watch it on demand. And then, yeah, it's on Hulu and it's on Amazon, I believe. Okay. So, you know, anybody that's watching this on YouTube or you're listening to this, I guarantee you what we're about to talk about, you're not going to get the same experience unless you watch the film itself. So, like you know let's talk about the early days you know let's talk about the good the great the great times you did have with your mom when you did have them um what was what was your relationship like specifically with your mom like what did you love about it so much well besides her being my mother of course right one of the things that made uh really made the case so impactful to me and the fact that I knew she was gone is my mother never left me. Gotcha. So I was constantly by my mother's side. Mm-hmm. I was like her world, right? For good or bad, you know. Um, so when I woke up in that morning, I knew that, that she was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother, so my family, I'm, my family is all from the East Coast. They're all from Philadelphia just to sort of backtrack, uh, you know, I'm the only member of my family not to go to Penn. Like my mother went to Penn, my father graduated from Wharton, aunts, uncles, everybody went to Penn. Uh, so, um, you know, my parents had a re- place a really high value on education. Right. And growing up, I was, you know, it, it was funny because you know, my mom would really dive into everything that I was interested in. So I was always constantly learning. And I knew that I learned that from a young age to always be hungry for knowledge, being a voracious reader, getting involved in the arts and all these things. Right. So my mother was very like, literally like school would end. I'd get like a week off and I'd go into summer school, go into classes for science and arts and all this stuff you know, that like some kids, you know, their, their dads are out there pushing them to throw a baseball and be a baseball star. And mine was, my parents were so into education and that was the thing. So for me growing up, you know, I had that support basis for my mother. I was her constant companion and 
she was wonderful. She was a light in my life and I hers. And, you know, she was strict with me in a lot of ways, but at the same time, you know, she was like my best friend and, and I loved her obviously a lot, <laughs> you know, with all my heart. And I, um, you know, the memories of just her, I mean, you know, in the film, I talk about certain things that, you know, I, I was like a little adult with her. So she talked to me, you know, one of the interesting things is when you make a film like this and you delve into the psyche of the characters, which myself being a character, uh, a lot of people, you know, therapists, behavioralists will tell you when a parent treats a child like an adult and talks to them like a person, that really is what enhances their growth. You know, it's not the baby talk or the babying. It's like, and my mother treated me like I was an adult. I knew about things that not a lot of normal kids learn about. And in fact, I was, I mean, I had a Game Boy when they first came out and this was like kind of when all this happened, but I was the last person out of any of my friends to get a Nintendo. <laughs> I was allowed to go play Nintendo at a friend's right. house right. on special occasions. The Game Boy was cool when it came out because it was portable so I could sit, it would shut me up in the car or whatever. Right. But I, uh, but my, my mom was not on that tip. My mom was on the, you know, you're playing math blaster on the computer. <laughs> I just completely dated myself, but I'm sure people, uh, but some people might remember math blaster. So those were the things. And, and so my mother was, like I said, very into my education, my artistic side and and really developing that and again treating me like I was like a little person I mean she used to joke and say yeah he's like 10 going on 40 because right. I was like a little person and then you know when you watch the film and for me and we will delve in this in a little bit but when I didn't see the film until I saw it in the theater mm, okay. so I because I wanted to be removed from the editorial process and Barbara wanted me to be removed from that too. She just never wanted to say that, but right. that's how I felt because I figured, look, my contributions are going to be purely vanity. I sound stupid here. I look fat in this shot or whatever. It's not going to contribute to the actual, you know, uh, benefit of the, of the picture. And let's just face it. She went to Academy Awards. She kind of knows what she's doing. <laughs> right. A little bit. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm in good hands. Right. Uh, at the same time, I, um, you know, so I'm, so I'm watching the film in the theater and I'm looking at myself as a young man on the witness stand and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't changed at all. This is, this is the same. <laughs> I'm, I, just, I just look older. I got a beard. Uh, you right, know, right, right. I'm essentially the same, the same cat. Right, I'm the same right, right. kid up there. And that is everyone's response when they see the film. They're just like, you are, you know, that's your, that's who you are. <laughs> right, right. And it's, right. it's pretty crazy. It's, it's pretty crazy. Um, you know, I don't and, know if that answered your question or not. That was me just Yeah, no, no, out. no, that was, that was perfectly fine. But I appreciate that too, because, you know, you definitely explained how you actually saw yourself. And that's actually the key, because a lot of people would think like, well, what did you think about the film? You know what I mean? And obviously it came out, so you had to approve it at some point, you know, but, um, you know, the, I think I think it's it's crazy that the first time you saw it was in the theater because 
people don't and let me explain this to everybody that's listening or watching this all right so from a filmmaker standpoint when you take somebody out of editorial process this kind of defeats the insecurities of the person being on camera so it kind of speeds up the editorials process because if we include the persons that we're covering and we let them control what we're trying to bring to the you know to the forefront we'll be editing probably forever we'll be reshooting and when you do reshoots everybody know time is money so when you when you see something for the first time when it's finally done it's kind of like a you got to take what i just gave you and if you give me any editorial points i'm just letting you know that we're probably not going to do it because we're done now because people don't like to re-edit we hate re-editing we hate reshooting it's the most annoying process unless we ourselves call it if we don't call it we don't want to do it so that's that's bananas that you were even that patient because i know for a person like me i'm like i don't even want to see it no more nope nope i don't want to see it i don't want to see it in the theaters i don't care what it looks like just i'll see it when i get there so you're brave i wouldn't have watched it i just i don't even want to see it nope i don't even want it nope just release it wherever it's going to be released i'll talk about it later but um you know to be honest with you the first time i saw it i hated it really i hated it wow I, I didn't, <laughs> but it wasn't because i hated the film i get it i just i was going through such a wave of emotions again sitting in a theater thinking okay i sound like i said something in there i was like i can't believe i said that i can't believe i said this yep. you know and i'm a pretty i like to think of myself as a pretty articulate guy right but sometimes when you're on camera you'll just say some stuff like you know I think the I was rambling talking moments. About I do talk about something. And I said, you know, I meant to say desecrated. I think I said defecated. <laughs> let me let me guess. They kept that in there. No, they didn't. But okay. I, I, I was talking to Barbara. I said, were there any moments? She's like, yeah, you had two of them, but everything else was perfect. And she was, that was one of the things. I was like, oh man, you stupid. That's <laughs> funny. That's funny. But you know, I and you know, just going like I said, just. The way that she put that film together, like I felt like I was just in a flow of a timeline. And that was the most amazing part because I just, you know, like I said, when I watch films now, because I, I'm a filmmaker, I just look at everything and I just kind of pick it apart. And in oh, this yeah. in this film, I was like, I didn't really find any things that I would have been like, all right, I would have said this differently, or I would have put this over here or put this in this timeline. It was I just like it was like a time traveling thing like we just start at the beginning and then this is where we end up at um you know when when everything had happened you know and like i said i just want everybody to go check the film out i don't want to tell too much of the film in here because then people are like oh i, I heard everything i don't want to go please go watch the film man so when when everything had happened you know what what was that process of emotions going through like how long did it take you to kind of like you know process these emotions because for one there was no weaning it was just you woke up one day she was here one day she wasn't you know pro that process though the trial is a whole nother process so i'm talking about before the trial even goes on what what was that process of because a lot of people don't understand the law they don't understand how it works you know i want you to kind of like give them insight on if a child at any point or an adult you know if somebody is you know you thinking like is are you reporting this person missing first before you know what happened like what was that process like one day you said you know no i know this is different what happened after that so and again 
like I was saying before, when you make something of this, when you make a film like this and you go through all these sort of stages and then the film is released and you start talking to people that are, you know, uh, psychologists and work with kids and whatever, and they start to explain to you, like, <clears throat> I had a friend and she works with foster care kids, right? And she was like, she saw the film and she said, hey, you know, we went to high school together. Mm -hmm. I want to talk to you about it because I have some answers for you. And basically, you know, she said, the way that your mother treated you was what made you, how your response, your, because your cognitive development in a lot of ways was up here mm -hmm. as, an, as a kid instead of like as a child, like a child development. So your fight or flight, and so she says when trauma hits people, right? So if you're at this level, you bounce and you land at this level where you're like, okay, and you're using instead of your, instead of, you know, your limbic system, right? And your emotions, you're using like your, and I'm not a doctor, but like your frontal cortex, your, your thoughts, like, okay, you're rational. This is what's happening. Right. So when I, in like, for example, in my TED talk, I talk about, you go from in your response to trauma from why to what now or what's next, right? right? So for me, my what now started the morning that I woke up after hearing the thuds and it was an action plan. Mm -hmm. So I knew that she was dead in my heart of hearts and I hoped it, I, I hope not, but I could tell. Right. And, you know, as I, you know, after I heard the thuds and I heard these footsteps slowly creep down the hallway and I was sleeping in bed and I was looking at the clock. It was like a Batman clock was on the wall and it said like 318 AM, right? Mm -hmm. Which ironically, almost every New Year's Eve, I wake up at that time in the morning, right. like clock. It's, I don't know if it's a psychological thing or what, but, right. and I, uh, you know, I could see out of my peripheral vision, my father's footsteps in my doorway. And I'm mm -hmm. saying to myself, don't look up, don't look up. Because I know that if I had gone like this and looked up, I wouldn't be sitting here. Right. And, um, and that's a scary thought, by the way. It is. No, it is when you think about it. Yep. Uh, so for me, it was like, okay. And again, in my TED talk, I talk about, you know, we as human beings are natural, na natural empaths, right? And we are always wanting to figure out why things happen to us or why a horrible tragedy happens and towers are falling down in, in you know, lower Manhattan or, you know, some crazy man is driving their, you know, car into a crowd of protesters or whatever, you know, the, the tragically, you know, consequential violence that is occurring, right? Around the world, right? So, you know, my, my response was, okay, instead of trying to figure out why my mom was gone, what do I do now? What's the action plan? So right. I call her friends. I say she's missing. Police are dispatched to the house, you know, on New Year's Day. And my father is away because he's traveling to Erie, Pennsylvania, because he's handling us. He's burying her body. He's doing all this stuff. I literally tell, and my doctor was a, my, my father was a doctor in small town Ohio right. so they're not exactly interested in opening up cases against people that have 
the means to sue the police department mm -hmm. or yeah. be like, why are you doing this? So their approach was very much like, you know, uh, well, leave this guy alone. Like she's missing. They got into a fight. His story was they got into a fight. She left in a car and on the driveway, that's it, right? <clears throat> so she's a missing person. Right. I knew that wasn't true. By the grace of God, a police detective named Lieutenant David Messmore on this, I believe it was the 2nd of January, or the missing persons report had crossed his desk. And he looked at it and he goes, huh, this is interesting. And so he came out to the house <clears throat> on his own accord because he thought, he felt that it was, something was weird. Mm -hmm. And I basically pulled him aside and I said, I, my mother would never do this. I know that something has happened to her and I don't trust my father as far as I could throw him. That's literally what I said. And from that point to when they finally, you know, exhumed her body from underneath the basement floor of his house, 25 days later, it was me going into, you know, I would have, I had a relationship with him where I would be at school. My father is often eerie. My, my grandmother, my father's mother, who was really close to my mother, like right. almost like her mother in a lot of ways. Right. Um, she was, you know, saying, we're not going to talk to the police. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. And basically keeping a watchful eye over me. I wasn't <clears throat> allowed to be on the telephone. Mm -hmm. When I was home, I'd have to sneak off with the portable phone. And then finally that was taken away from me. And stuff because I was calling her friends and everything right, right. and trying to call the police because my father was like, we're not going to call the police. We're not going to call the FBI. Mommy left. And I'm going, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> right. Like, right, right, right. So to me, so I would say, hey, I'm going to go home and I'm going to pull out the bookshelves that like lead to the crawl space in the, uh, in the house and look for my mother's body. I mean, these are the things I was thinking of as a 12 year or as an 11 year old boy you know, not normal stuff. Right. And I was ca cataloging like my father's behavior. Like he, he was a very violent and aggressive man. I mean, I'm sure you gathered that from the uh, film, yep. but he all of a sudden when everything happened, he turned into like, you know, he would be showing me like movies like Rambo and Predator and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden he turned into this, this whole like against violence and why are you playing a video game that has shooting and all this i'm like who are you like this is weird like right 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 first of all i wasn't terribly close to my father i, I spent 99 percent of the time with my mother you know the only times i would really spend with my father is i would sometimes go on rounds with him to the hospital to meet patients and and that was cool and i would like play a little harmonica and tap dance and whatever and entertain right. people because that was my thing. Right. And then I, uh, you know, or we would go skiing together and that was it. Like that was our, the real crux of our relationship, uh, you know? Right. Uh, so he turned very odd. And so about 10 to 12 days into January, we go, I'm with my father, he's in his truck and we pull into a service station. He's going inside to get lottery tickets or whatever, doing gas things. And I, as soon as he, as soon as I know he can't see me, I open up the little, you know, armrest thing or like I'm searching in the glove box and I find a picture of a house, a Polaroid. 
and another photograph of his girlfriend. And she was sitting with her two kids in front of a fireplace that was wrapped in plastic that was looked like covered with plastic. So it looked like a new fireplace. Right, right, right. And, you know, this is 1990. So we're not, we don't have Google. We can't like resources. It's like, you know, old fashioned detective work at that time. Because mm-hmm. so I tell Lieutenant David Messmore about this picture of this house and Sherry being in the house. And I said, I think my father has another house. Turns out he does. And then that's when the whole thing started of, you know, get across state lines, getting into search warrants. You know, that's sort of when everything, their investigation yielded some, oh, okay, maybe we should look into this house. But of course you're dealing with two different police departments and everything. And right, 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 right. <clears throat> so I was able to tip them off in that way. And that's ultimately where they found my mother's body, like probably about like 10, 12 days after that. That's cool. uh, Now about around the 20th, so that she was found, I was removed from the house on the 24th of January. 25th of January is like when I was notified that she was found. Um, around the 20th, 21st, because my father, I was starting to get a sense like he was getting wind of what I was up to. Mm-hmm. You know, police investigator kept coming back, wanting to talk to my dad, this, that, and the other. I think that he thought of like, you know, that he, you know, that something was going down, right? So he has this idea. He goes, oh, you know, I have a medical conference in Florida, which was not uncommon because we used to go twice a year to Clearwater Beach, Florida, where these Mm -hmm. medical conferences were. I had never been there with my father alone at this time right. and he said oh i'm going to take you to you know to florida we'll go to a medical conference and now i grew up uh, the first things my parents did is teach me how to swim i was a good swimmer i still am and uh they um you know i was terrified because i was like i don't think i'm coming back from florida i got that uh, sense okay and i told david massmore i said look he wants to take me to florida and I, I don't feel good about that. I'm scared. And because it just came out of nowhere, because first of all, the medical conferences really weren't around that time. Right, they were right, toward, right. Like, towards the spring. This is the dead of winter. And I knew that. So something was rotten in Denmark. And no offense to the Danes that might be watching, but <laughs> uh, something wasn't, didn't, wasn't quite right. And that put him into high alert. And he was like, we got to have children's services to get this guy out of here. Mm-hmm. He's the only witness to what could be a murder. Right, right, right. Which ultimately ended up being the case. So they removed me from the home on the 24th of January. Children's services came in. And uh, they're like, you know, and all these, you know, police detectives are in there, the, the crime lab, they've got these scanners for bodies, and all this commotion's happening. And I'm woken up, they're like, you got 20 minutes to pack a bag and we're getting out of here type thing. And, you know, my dog was there, who I loved. And they're like, well, you can get your dog later. That ended up not being the case. Uh, I never saw my dog again, which was a big deal to me. And I, you know, you, I, you had a light fall a little bit ago when we were talking about some stuff. And you're right, like, oh, right, something right. happened. So I have an interesting story about the dog. So you can ask me later, <laughs> during, you know, um, because that was a big deal. And right. I ended up finding closure with that too, which was amazing but completely out of the blue. 
so yeah, so I don't know if I've answered your question or not, but it was it was basically nobody listened to me except for one detective, and he's mm-hmm. and then that's how everything started unraveling because and even at the time the the cap the police captain said you know if you don't find he's like we are going after a doctor we don't do this if you don't find anything you're done like you're fired like he's like this is an embarrassment please. you know he's you're going to be an embarrassment this that and the other and it ended up being one of the largest cases in ohio history that's crazy i was gonna say because i know a lot of like small towns usually are like that it's one of those like if there's nothing move on because all the time the resources the money that they have to spend into you know investigating and sending out paying overtime and all those i you know, for one, I never lived in a small town. I'm a city guy. So when I watch these movies, I'm like, wow, it's like the same complex. Small towns, if they have like one police department that controls the whole town, it's like, you know, they probably got maybe 10 police officers, two detectives, one sheriff. You know, where yeah. the big cities are like, you know, you get about two sheriffs, you know, a couple sheriffs, you know, here and there. And it's, it's bananas. So, you know, for all of those people that live in big cities, big towns, like small towns have it bad. So when big crimes that there's a lot of crimes in small towns, we'll never hear about because there's just nothing to report, you know, in a sense. Um, but, you know, that's that's a, such a crazy part of the story because you're so young, but you're also so in tuned with the way life operates and the things that go on. Uh, you, you didn't miss nothing like that's that was the that's the crazy thing about it you didn't miss a beat and um whoo that's it's, it's deep because like i said when i saw it i was like god i was like i'm trying to put myself at 12 years old and i'm like where was i at, at 12 years old like where was i mentally at but my you know my grandmother who raised me she taught me a lot as well like i knew how to cash a check at 12. i knew how to write a check at 12. you know i was i was raised that way you know but i was also raised by a grandparent where they She's already raised her first set of kids and to get another set is like, I'm going to teach you everything I didn't teach them. I'm not going to make the same mistake again, you know, so that I, you know, and that's pretty dope that your mom was actually the first generation parent to actually teach you something besides, you know, grandparents, if they, you know, if they had that opportunity, she was able to give you that. And that's, that's dope. I, I love that. Um, now there's another piece of that story that you know, I definitely want to talk about, I mean, I want to kind of leave it, you know, I'm gonna leave that, I'm gonna leave that for people to go watch in the film, because I don't even want to talk about that part, because I, that part threw me for a loop, because I didn't see it coming, so I'm gonna just give you guys a heads up, there's another person involved in this story, that you guys have to go, I, go watch the film, and you know what I'm talking about, but the dog, so your connection to the dog, a lot of people are gonna feel this, because a lot of people think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of us that don't have pets, you know, only thing I think I ever cried over was my gerbil. And that was when I had a gerbil when I was younger and he died when I was in school, I came home. I was like, I couldn't understand like what happened. So for somebody to have a, a, a pet that's alive, can't go back and get him. You know, what is that in, in this young child's mind? Like, where are you at with that mentally? Like, what was that, that, how did you, did you disconnect from that at all? I mean, I even, when I was finally adopted at 13, I even, you know, I wanted to get the dog back and my adoptors were like, you know, and they had a dog when I arrived and they're like, no, he wouldn't get along with Rusty. There was like any excuse, but basically the dog was gone. So flash forward to 2018 and I'm doing the hometown screening of the film. And it's the second day 
and it is probably like 105 degrees outside in Ohio. It's a massive heat wave. It's nasty. Nasty. I love the heat, but you know, when you're in the theater. So in the middle of the film, in a very key part, when I'm looking at some photographs, the film shuts off in the middle of the auditorium. <laughs> and I knew, I jumped right up because I knew exactly what happened. That the projector went out and I turn, I look in the projector booth and I make eye contact with the guy who's, he's the houseman. He's an audio guy. He's a lighting guy. He's not a projector guy. And he took on the responsibility of screen. They'd never really screened a film there before. Mm. They show films, but not listening like that. Right. You know, a premiere and whatever, you know, and a film that was so many people were connected to, right? Mm -hmm. And the projectors, and I jump up and I see him and I run up and I'm like, it overheated. All I'm hoping is like the bulb didn't burst on the projector because I'm thinking to myself, okay, here's a, you know, a, a DLP. And where are we going to get a bulb on a Sunday in Mansfield, Ohio for a project? Like, you know, I'm like, this is, this would be terrible. Anyways, luckily it just overheated. But so there was a, a forced intermission in the middle of the film. And it was, I, I was, and the part of the movie where this happens, I was like, this is my mom interrupting. And I knew it when it happened. And I then discovered why. So because there was this forced intermission, this woman comes down and she, I had seen her looking at me before, uh, but she wasn't going to talk to me. Right. You know, she told me this. It just happened that we were there. I was standing in the aisle. I was talking to some people and she came up and she goes, hi, Collier, my name is, and I can't remember her name right off the top of my head, but, you know, I think we had your dog. Wow. And, I, and mind you, I have always wondered about this. Mm -hmm. And even making the film, never found out. And I have, you know, I now have a, a, one, a one chihuahua who's still alive. Her name is Blondie. She's sitting right here. She's, she'll be 16 in March. Yeah. Uh, she had a brother that I had had first with a girlfriend. And, and I was very attached to him. He had a lot of health problems. And so... I, after I made the film, but he, I, I eventually had to put him to sleep in 2017. Mm -hmm. And I was so connected to this dog in a way and, and her as well, uh, because I think that I had never found out what happened to Gaudi. And so this was like my first, I was connected in this weird thing. And I hate to just take it off on a tangent about dogs, but this is something about human connection that you discover as a filmmaker. And so I think it's important. Um, Anyway, she says, I think that we, that I had your dog. And then she says, we got it from this person who I think was your house cleaner. And then she gave it to us. And she's like, I just want you to know that he had the best life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, and I'm like, at this point, like about ready to just completely lose my, my right, 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 right. Up tears. And then she starts telling me, she's like, I was raised on a farm. He had all the all the space in the world to run. We had horses, we had pigs. And he would was best friends with the pigs. Mm -hmm. And he would um, he would go to sleep with the pigs in their little pig pen at night right, right. because they were friends and all this. She's like, he just, he was so loved. He lived a long and healthy life and he was happy. And I was like, 
Mm. <laughs> I could imagine, like, yeah. It's, it's things like that, and I'm tearing up just thinking about it. It's things like that. When you make a film, first of all, the film impacts people, second of all. And you do it for the right reasons. You know, let's just face it. You're not, you don't make documentary films to make money. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. Not how well that goes. Uh, you, um, but the rewards that come out of something like this, being it so personal, is getting closure on so many levels. It's, it's hard to explain. And that's why, you know, when people are fortunate, like you talk about yourself, you eventually want to do something about your story, right? Mm-hmm. Which we'll talk about in a sec. Yep. You know, uh, the rewards that you get from doing a project and being, I think one of the, the best things about my outlook on the project and what I chose to do was be as vulnerable as possible. Right, right. And it's that vulnerability that has connected me with the audiences, that resonates with the audiences, that it's the authenticity, it's the vulnerability, it's you know obviously not being able to be scared. There are parts in the film when I go to see the case file and you know, Barbara Koppel is a filmmaker. You know, she's done documentaries on everybody from the Dixie Chicks to Woody Allen to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, the Hemingway suicides running from crazy. It, it's it, I'm doing a project with her right now about the Pointer Sisters. Mm-hmm. So there's you know, there's lots of you know, she's dealt with a lot of very famous people, Bon Jovi, all this. And you know, because you're from Jersey, I got to throw the Bon Jovi thing out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, having somebody like that, she is so good at drawing things out of you. So there's the moment where, you know, they say, you want to see the case file? And she's like, call you, would you mind doing this? And David Massmore is in the film and his wife are like, absolutely not. Like, you're not seeing this. And mm-hmm. I'm like, no. I'm like, this is what we're here to do. Right you know, it's everything. You've got to lay out your soul on camera because that's the only way you are going to be able to create something that is going to impact people and going to touch their soul and going to resonate with them. If you can be authentic and vulnerable. And that's a huge moment in the film. And it has resonated with people everywhere because they're just like, you know, I can't believe doing that. I can't imagine it. And your vulnerability inspires me. And that's that makes it all worth it in the end. You know what I mean? Yep. yep. So that's a cool thing. Yep. And and you know, uh, you know, from a, like I said, once again, it's just it's it's funny because like I said, we both have, you know, our stories, but also how we've become filmmakers to tell other stories. It's so crazy because a lot of people might look at us sometimes, like I know for me. If I see a story that I feel like needs to be seen or needs to be heard, I'm not afraid to jump at him like, hey, you need to tell your story where somebody might be kind of taken back. Like, I don't I don't want to go there. But I'm like, listen, you know, don't ever be afraid to tell your story. Like, that's just my belief. Like somebody is going to take from it. I don't care if you if you go on Facebook Live or Instagram Live and it's only one person in your live tell that story somebody's gonna hear it you know you can save it download it put it and post it up there's ways you can reach the masses with your story 
Um, so I just wanted to definitely, you know, commend you on that for the bravery that you took. Because even, like you said, you saw the case files, you know, I probably, I probably couldn't have did it. You know what I mean? Like I personally probably would have been like, uh, I don't know. But it made it bad enough because just, just as bad of you seeing those, I was actually able to read the death certificate. And the death certificate is sometimes just as, you know, it, it gives just as much detail than actually seeing it on photo, you know? So when I was 12, I was at, I actually found the death certificate. That was the first time I actually found, you know, to even see what happened. And I was like, what, you know, gunshot, like, what you mean? You know, and coming back from finding about his story, I was able to find out what he was doing and the reasons why all of this went down the way it did. And, you know, I mean, it took me now, I'm 33. I think I didn't want to tell my story. I told my story for the first time when I was 12, but that was because I didn't have a relationship with my mom and I was looking for my mom, you know, but I think when I turned 25, I was actually able ready to like, all right, I've met my mom finally and able to tell my story. And um, people don't really know how much that takes to actually sit and open up to some people, to people that don't know you, you know, like there's just people like looking at you in the audience, like, yeah, so, you know, and if they don't connect with you, they don't understand, it goes from I'm empathizing with you to now I'm just being nosy and I just want to know, you know, and, and that's the one that hurts when people can't empathize with you because that's what we all look for, that empathy when it's coming time to tell our stories, you know, oh. and, um, you know, and, and that's where I feel like you made that mark in this story and like, you know, and, and, com and accommodations, you know, to her as well for putting this story so well put together to even tell it, you know, and the way it was put together. I know you guys are probably like, man, can you please tell us more about this? No, I'm not telling you nothing. I'm trying to tell you all to go watch it yourself because there's a lot of things that we're not going to talk about in this podcast interview that you guys might want to go watch yourself. Um, so when did you know after all of this, when did you know, at what point in time in your life did you know you wanted to do film? Like when, when did you know about that? So I always wanted to do something with the story, right? Okay. And photography was like my hobby in high school. I was, okay. that was my, I got into photography probably when I was a sophomore-ish. You know, the arts were, as I talk about in my TED talk, like the arts were my escape, right? And how I coped with what I was going through. Not only with what happened, as a kid, but then the aftermath of that, going into the system, getting adopted, dealing with a new family, dealing with living in the same town where all this went down, where I'm a, you know, pseudo celebrity for all the wrong reasons, you know? Wow. So I was like, well, how am I gonna, I, I've always wanted to kind of get out of that shadow of that. Like, oh, that's the Boyle kid. That's the kid whose dad killed his mom and he testified at trial, blah, 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 right? Um, so I, in 1999, I was out here visiting a friend you know, I was in Los Angeles and I went to the, the dollar theater. I saw a film called American history X mm -hmm. stars Edward Norton, Beverly D'Angelo, Elliot Gould, Edward yep. Furlong. Amazing they, film. Amazing film. Amazing in film, my yeah. mind, top five films of all time. And if no one's seen it, you got to watch it. Definitely. Uh, agree, yep. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 still to this day very <laughs> apropos to what's going on. Right, right. Yep. yep. Crazy. Um, 
And I said, you know, whoever made that film understands the, the consequences of violence. Mm -hmm. And I want them to help me tell my story. So flash forward 10 years later, my girlfriend at the time, we were with we're this house in Hollywood and I had moved out here to do, I went to school for music. So I moved out here oh, to do man. music and all that stuff. Then I got into modeling and doing stuff in front of the camera. And then I went into music and then that didn't work out in sort of a debacle, you know, and I was sort of in this time period of like, okay, I've got to figure out what my next move is. And I'm like, okay, I was interested in photography. I met some people through Craigslist <laughs> that worked on set and they said, here, you can learn. And they would bring me on sets. And they were like, look, you know, you can, you know, you can come out, but you're working for free. You'll get a free meal out of it, but it's like getting an education. Right. Exactly. You know? And you're getting it firsthand. Right. So I learned like that. That's how I got into filmmaking. Anyways, I met, and this was before I was really on that tip, sort of like in that life, like limbo. Okay, this mm -hmm. didn't work out. I thought I was going down this pathway. Now I'm going down a different pathway. Anyways, I met who ended up becoming my co-executive producer of the film and mentor to me, uh, John Morrissey. So my piazza or my, my girlfriend at the time, she comes in, she says, you know, this guy was just doing a coffee table book. He's a movie producer. I was like, well, what films do you produce? Oh, you know, Booty Call, something called Havoc, something called 1114, and American History, something. I was like, American History actually goes, yeah, that's it. She went through MySpace. I'm like, get him over here. Right. We become friends. And uh, I, when I was 18, so. idea to do a docu-series about the consequences of violence in America. And the best thing is I own the rights to the pilot and it's about my life. And I mm -hmm. gave him this book and sort of the rest is history. He knew Barbara Koppel. We got her on board. You know, this is like 2009. And for everyone that's watching that Kalia. is a filmmaker. I'm gonna have you start over with you that part. No, no, right with there with the book because for some reason I heard this like robotic thing happen, and you were talking, but there was no audio. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was what happened? Your now your video is back. Your video got super choppy. Oh, uh, okay. So it, it might have been me. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know. But anyways, let's redo it. So yeah. So yeah, from where your girlfriend got uh, the MySpace, yeah. right back to my. Yeah. So my my girlfriend got this message on MySpace, and she comes yeah. into my little office in our house that we have, and we're in Hollywood, and she's like, "Yeah, this guy is." She was a model. She's like, "He wants to shoot a coffee table book with models and this time and the other." He's a movie producer. I was like, "Oh, well, what movies has he done?" She's like, "Well, Booty Call," and I'm like, "Oh, I remember Booty Call and Eleven Fourteen and some movie called Havoc and Kingdom Come and some movie called American History." I was like, "American History X," and she's like, "Yeah," and I was like, "Get him here." Mm -hmm. And I met him. We became friends. I said, "Look, I'm interested in getting in the film business." He's like, "Well, I'm a producer," so he started kind of introducing me a little bit to this world, you know, from the producing side. And I was interested. So I started learning all facets 
got jobs on Craigslist, like I was saying, and you know, to work on set, things like that. And I eventually said to him, I said, look, I have a, he, he wanted to do a film project. And I was like, I don't want to do something like that. It's kind of silly. And I was like, I don't want to do that with you. What I want to do is something that's going to enhance your legacy and mine. I want to do a docu-series about the consequences of violence. And the best news is, is pilot for the series, I own the rights to because it's based right. on my life. Nice. I gave him this book, this blue book of newspaper articles, and he read through them and was like, holy like he was stunned he goes well i know somebody who might be interested in this and that was barbara koppel because he had done her film havoc he had produced it mm -hmm. she's a documentary filmmaker but this is her first feature like narrative feature and it stars like you know uh and hathaway i mean it's a great cast Anne hathaway joseph gordon levitt freddie rodriguez and channing tatum before he was channing tatum that we all know and love mm -hmm. and uh you know it's a great film and but her thing is documentaries and she became interested in it and so like i was saying that was 2009 we didn't make the film until almost 2017. so for anyone that's a filmmaker this is a long and arduous process and it's not like i was telling somebody this the other day some people behave like they're handing out sitcoms at the airport <laughs> like oh i'll come to la i'll be famous mm -hmm. Uh, you know, whatever. I've got a really interesting story, or everybody's got this screenplay, and oh, I'm going to make the screenplay, and you know, a lot of it is follow through. And right. as I'm progressing in my, you know, that relationship with the girlfriend ended, and I moved on, and I got into heavily just okay. I'm not supporting anyone. I'm going to be, I'm going to work on this filmmaking thing. I'm going to learn everything I can about filmmaking from being a grip to being a, you know, a gaffer to a juicer to, and then I was like, oh, I wonder if I could shoot things and make money because I love photography. Oh, there's a director of photography. So I started getting into like learning all this stuff, get a video camera, get this. And I think my first real camera was a Sony FX, uh, uh, Sony FX 1000. Okay. Which was like okay. the <laughs> Z1U <laughs> camera, but it didn't have the XLR inputs. Right, right. Uh, and I use that to shoot stuff and just, you know, I taught myself final cut, everything like that. So I, uh, I was like, I wanted to do something with the story. And so as you know, it, it really didn't, the momentum didn't start picking up until like 2015, mm -hmm. got an agent over at Gersh representing the project. We got interest with Barbara attached from you know id discovery from amazon and everybody wanted it. And then id discovery was like look because they're true crime and they're really like starting right. to kill it in the true crime market and they're like we wanted to do something with barbara we wanted we love this story because there was already an ip built around it there was an episode of forensic files people were aware of the case blah 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 right so they were like we love to do this and we want to do it as like a one hour one-off pilot and the concept was there was going to be eight to 10 episodes a season. And each episode was going to be about a traumatic, violent event. And each episode was gonna be directed by a different documentary filmmaker. Right. So Morgan Spurlock would do one, D.A. Pennebaker would do one, you know. Uh, and it, you, know, you can think of all the documentary filmmakers that, you know, that yeah, would goes crazy. be great for this, right? Michael Moore, you know, so that was the concept. And- I'm Sorry, I'm just damn late. Oh, 
Yeah, I'm like, um, what is wrong with this light? But all right, there we go. Go ahead. You can keep going. Go ahead. It ended up being it ended up being the full French documentary because we shot everything and the first edit, I believe, was like three hour, three and a half hours. Jesus Christ. And like then to cut it down to what you now see. And Barbara was just like, she went to investigation discovery. She goes, This isn't a one hour thing. This is this story i can't tell the story in under you know two hours or whatever you know this has to be without missing context yeah, yeah. yeah exactly so that's what you end up seeing and that's one of the wonderful things about filmmaking and i believe art in general is you set off with one idea you're like okay this is what and the natural evolution of things the way that it all plays out becomes totally different yep that's which, big, is, big, yeah. which is sometimes can throw you for a loop, but also is really one of the super cool things about all of this. Mm -hmm. So that's how the sort of generation, the, the you know, the genesis of the project happened. And that's so dope. That's so dope because like I and what you really keyed in on was people think that as writers, filmmakers, producers, uh executive producers people just think like one day we wake up and we write up a little script let's go shoot this tomorrow we'll be done in a week it comes out tomorrow like it's not like that you know and um i know for me i'm a very impatient person i'm the type of person where once i start something no it has to get done now it gotta come out tomorrow but that's also there's also a beauty in the dysfunction of how long things take because people don't realize that timing is the essence in the universe. So when it's supposed to come out is when it's going to come out. And people don't realize that in the film industry, because we're so so much of a creative, that the universe sometimes will make us sit down, be patient, and start to put people around us as it goes along to actually build up and tell the story that you want to bring, but also it'll bring it in a different light. It'll also bring a different power to it. So for you, you didn't have a lot of these, you know, people in your path yet when you wanted to tell, tell a story at first. It took about eight years, nine years for it to actually come out. The process that it went through, the format that you guys created at first, it didn't go that way. But it also worked in your advantage. Like it's still, the universe brought it back to where it is now. Now, my question is, are we ever going to see the footage that was not Put into the into the film itself that's a good question i don't know that's a really good question uh you know i have a whole hard drive full of like video diaries like when i went into pre-production on this i went back to ohio you know here's the thing this is a little inside baseball information so filming in a prison and a little bit of a spoiler alert but there is we do go to the prison in the film, filming in a prison is not as easy as one would think. Uh, so what happened is I'd had permission from the prison in Ohio at that time, the warden, whatever the warden says goes. So I had hooked up some friends of mine that were motorcycle stunt riders that became like crusaders for, you know, you know, they found God and were saved. And so that mm -hmm. was their mission. And I was like, look, these guys could go and do stunt shows at the prison. So I had hooked them up with the, the warden. 
and uh they would go and they did these shows and stuff and super cool and and you know i had gotten the warden sent in permission to like come in there and film right finally you know and I, there were so many things i was doing on the film but i had basically laid it on everyone else i was like like you guys call the prison because you guys need to deal with that because it's me and I, i've already laid the framework that you've got to kind of pitch us in or whatever right the day that they finally got around it getting all that sorted out was the day that he was fired upwards so there was a new warden no idea who i was and she wasn't about to grant permission so we were in like a really big standstill and here we had already taken money from investigation discovery because i sold the concept of the film before it was actually made and for people that don't know about filmmaking you know a lot of times you raise private funds especially documentaries you make the film and then you take it to things like American film market mm -hmm. or you get an agent or both and, and you a packaging agent and purchasing agents and, and people that shop worldwide rights and domestic rights. And it's this whole kerfuffle of, you know, <laughs> stuff <laughs> on the top of getting the money to be able to do the project, finish the pro like finishing the project is great. There's a lot of things that are in the can that nobody ever finishes. Right. I was littered with those stories. Right. So, for us to be able to get that money to make the project, and it was not a lot of money. It was, you know, we always need the, the thing in the end. You always, always can be paid more. Always more money to make projects. Could have had more time. Could add more of this, you know, but whatever. It is what it is. So we had already taken the money, and we weren't allowed in the prison with this big climactic sort of thing that we wanted to do. Right now, it all rested on my shoulders. Of like, okay, so I had to go back to Ohio. This is speaking to your question about the footage mm -hmm. so i have a whole hard drive of footage because i went back with a gopro and interviewed everyone on my own to get their permission to be in the film but to also track down a way that i could figure out a way to get into the prison mm -hmm. with a camera so i had to really kind of back channel through a uh, a source in the governor's office a former warden from the prison who was doing a lot with recidivism rates of prisoners and you know former inmates and and making sure they don't you know, obviously recidivism they go back to jail well this is not the case works with the thing she liked my father all this stuff so i was able to negotiate this whole thing and she introduced me to the right people and i still have this gopro footage of me giving this pitch to the ohio department of corrections and it was the best pitch of my life that down of like why this film is going to be important you know i had maintained a relationship with my father because i wanted to make a project like this and i wanted his cooperation right my father being a sociopath it was all about him he literally kept saying to me well, when are you and john morrissey going to make a film to help me get out of prison i'm like oh don't worry dad we're working on it you know but i'm yeah. got this whole concept in my mind that it's different right and anyways the whole song and dance happens i get their permission and we go and i've got all this on like film with gopros and stuff but i think the interesting thing would be is when we're filming in the prison and things don't go exactly how i pitch them now you know again i'm not trying to have a spoiler here but you know i ask my father some tough questions i present some you know some documents to him and things and discuss uh they were livid 
and we wrapped filming and there's like a hot mic moment and our sound guy was just like kept the cameras rolling but they were trying to shut the interview down and all this stuff and i remember like after everything was done the woman who was the head of the department of corrections takes one of the producers into a room which is probably like a good 30 40 feet away this isn't a prison with concrete walls there was one glass window and she starts screaming at the top of the, her lungs at at him what is this what and we can hear everything that's being said and she is just chewing him out over this interview that i have with my father and how I'm a liar, how I said it was going to be this way, and it wasn't. They thought it was going to be this big come to Jesus moment. And look, they had their website guy there, a photographer, father and son reunited, this whole thing, moving past the trauma. And it was not that. Hey, <laughs> and not because of me. I'm just saying, you got to do what you got to do sometimes, man. That's, but that's journalism too, though. That and is. Pe and people don't realize that neither, that with being a photographer, a videographer, you're also a journalist. So your responsibility is to get what you came for, no matter what it takes to get it, you know, and if you have to finesse your way to get it, so be it, you know, yeah, that I like that. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's my type of that's my type of videographer. Like, I, I like that. That's that's so dope. Yeah. So yeah. after that, you know, what, what's, what's going on after that now? Like, you know, are, are, are you guys in the car? Is somebody crying to the car? Like, you know, because the producer just got chewed out. Like, is he crying on his way to the car? Like, is he? Oh, no, 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 no. He's just like, <laughs> he's like this little guy too. His name is Ray. He was wonderful. But I was just like, oh, poor. I mean, he was the guy that would get it from everyone. Like, all okay, okay. some investigation, discovery. So this, he was the one that was like having to deal with all the, the nonsense. Right, right. And, right. Uh, <laughs> he seemed like a great sport. I, that's that's what's up, though. Oh, yeah. He was, a fa he was fantastic. And, you know, <laughs> but, you know, back to, you so, I ended up getting this permission to film there and I'm calling up. So we were denied to be able to film in prison, this big dramatic scene that ends, the, you know, at the end of the film and which we had pitched to investigation discovery. So the day that I get the approval to do this is the day that Trump gets elected, right? Jesus. Or the day after I should say. Mm -hmm. So the election, so my fellow filmmakers are, you know, they're just, you know, besides themselves distraught. And I was, I'm not going to get into politics, but I'm not a doom and gloom person. So I'm like, guys, it'll be all right. We'll figure our way out of whatever, you know, it, this is, it, it, this is the hand you're dealt. Right. I'm somebody who my entire life has been dealt uh, a heavy hand. You know, uh, you play the cards you're dealt. You just deal, you work the situation out. So I'm trying to get them excited. Like I got us our permission to film. Remember when they said, we were allowed to like, yeah, I know, okay. And I'm like, oh, guys, come on. Like, really? We're going to let this bum us out? Mm -hmm. Like, we have, we've saved the film. We've, we're going to get our, what we hoped for, you know? Um, but yeah, so it, it, it was interesting. And uh, the, whole, the whole experience was just crazy going into the film. Uh, going into film in the prison. I was... I think the biggest bummer for me is my father had to sign all this, this paperwork and he was so eager to be on camera. So when you watch the film and you see my father coming, you know, again, spoiler alert, but when you see your father come in the room, he's in a really good mood. 
Right, 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 right. And he literally thinks that I am making a film about him to help him get out of prison. And I never said that to my father, but I never disagreed with that because <laughs> his cooperation. Right, exactly. I didn't be like, oh, dad, I'm going to put the, you know, the hard facts to you just so you know. I don't know. I'm like, yeah, no, it's cool. It's cool. I'm doing this. Thank you for your help. Like he was very cooperative. Right, right, right. I mean, there's ways that you can, because I, you know, obviously my whole, he did his best to be the worst possible human being in my life. Right. And my mentality was, okay, that's cool. I get it. Now you're going to do something for me. Right. You know, on the sneak tip, I'm like, I'm not going to give him any heads up or anything. No, this is all about me now. Right, 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 right. And, you know, I had made my peace with it going into the documentary uh, of my father. I made my peace long before that Mm -hmm. uh, with my father, forgiving him, you know, for years. And when I was traveling with the film and people would ask me, they're like, well, how can you forgive him? I'm like, you're not understanding. It's not about him. It's about me. Right, exactly. I can't move on. And I just wasn't raised like that. I'm my mother, very much my mother's son. Right. And, you know, I heard a great thing on Clubhouse the other day. This guy was talking. And he says, you know, one of the things that helps you get through is when you have a horrible parent, you at least have the satisfaction of knowing that your DNA only comes from 50%. Right, right, right. That's a dope analogy, yeah. And I was like, I'm going to use that. So here right, I am right, using right, that right. analogy. Right. So, uh, you know, I, I, I say to people, I was like, it's not about him. It's about me. And my DNA for my mother, is, it was, and the way I was raised by her was with compassion and love and hating and being angry your whole life is not going to do anything. It's not going to bring her back. It's not going to make my life any easier. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, one of those things where you can either choose to move on and play the hand you're dealt or wallow in your, the abyss of just, Oh, life dealt me a shitty hand. Oh, my mother was murdered. Woe is me. That's why, like, when I asked you, you sent me the flyer this morning and it said survivor. I said, no, I'm a thriver. And one of the things I talk about in my podcast, moving past murder is going from survivor to thriver because you're not just surviving you are thriving with the circumstance you're thriving you're dealing with your circumstance right you know i have a really good friend and his he didn't grow up he was raised by his grandparents his mother was very young when she had him his real father was incarcerated you know and he dealt with you know issues and things and so we all go through it in one way or another like my my circumstances are so extreme which I feel is tough. It's a tough cross to bear. But at the same time, it's wonderful in the fact that I am able to relate to so many people mm-hmm. because they'll see the film or they'll watch the TED Talk and they go, I mean, I don't know if I can use profanity, but like they'll say some, they'll say some shit like, man, I thought my life was fucked up, bro. Right. Like, right. Your shit's on a whole other level. And I'm like, yeah, it is. But that doesn't mean that your journey 
is somehow you know lessened by that right, i right, just right. have to be the happen to be the exception not the mm -hmm. rule right, like, that right. doesn't discount their feelings emotions their journey towards their path of healing and dealing with their circumstances right but if the gravity of my situation helps them come to grips of what they've been dealing with that's all i can ask for that right. i've done my job right. and it's amazing to be able it's amazing to be able to have that gift and that power, if you will, that superpower yeah. of resilience to yeah. share with people. And that I think is probably the greatest gift from making the film right. and from being able to do what I do and have done what I have done and accomplished what I've accomplished, you know, because that to me is, you know, a lot of people, I mean, like I met you through clubhouse, right? Mm -hmm. So part of it is, very geared these rooms are very geared towards making money you know and that's wonderful like entrepreneurship and stuff like that i am always somebody i mean let's face it you don't go into being a filmmaker to make money are, <laughs> right yeah lot of easier ways to make money in life yeah like, exactly be a stockbroker you want to make yep. money jordan belfort yep. you know but you want to create a legacy tell stories yeah that's what i want to do because Long after I'm taking the dirt nap, people are going to be able to look at something and it's timeless. It's about mm -hmm. somebody coming to terms with something that happened to them and making the best out of it and, and trying to lead by example. Right. And then what you said too, to piggyback off of what you said though, um, where we all have had a different extreme of how we lost somebody, but a loss is a loss. You know what I mean? Like, I, and that's where we all relate because we lost something, you know, a parent. And I think, you know, and for people who have both parents, they probably won't, and, and, and it all depends on your relationship as well. Like for me, my, my relationship with my dad, even though people might be like, you were three, how you remember that? I'm like, listen, my dad came to see me every day till the day he got murdered. You know what I mean? Like every day I was with this man, even though he didn't live in the household, believe it or not, you'd be like, well, he lived literally five minutes up the block, but he came and made sure he spent at least four to five hours every day with me. So my relationship and attachment to him was a lot different. So my loss was that much more extreme. Like you had your very tight knit relationship with your mom. You know, for me, I'm, I, I can only sit here and be like, damn, if I had 11 years with my dad, how would that have affected me differently? Rather than me yeah. at three years old, even though I had an attachment, I can't remember much. So there's not a lot that I can attach to where you have a lot to attach to as far as memories and the great yeah. times, even in the low times, maybe that in your relationship, it wasn't a low. It was just maybe you were being a rebel and you wasn't listening, you know, like, oh, those, brat. yeah, exactly. Like, you know, those are the lows in your relationship with that parent because you were just being a brat, like you said, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, I, I like I said, I definitely appreciate what you bring in that aspect of telling your story. You don't try to make yourself seem a lot more worse off than another person because we all relate in loss, you know, and that's such a big thing you know where a lot of people might tell their story but they always try to make it seem like their loss is a lot bigger than other people you know and you put it to an aspect where no i relate with all of you but i'm just telling my side of my loss this is my side of my story and you know i appreciate that thank you i i thank you for that and like i said for me when it's time for me to tell my story i hope that i bring it in that same aspect but that's why i have the podcast you know, I have written scripts already. I've already started writing a series. 
you know, to go down with my life. It's called Dreams. I've only written one episode so far, you know, and it's hard because I'm stuck like, damn, like, I don't want to keep writing this because I feel like as I keep writing it, I keep reliving it. And it's kind of like, you don't want to relive it, but I know that that's my next process. You gotta, you gotta live it real quick. Just write it down on the paper and leave it there. You know what I mean? So is there any advice that you would give somebody who's like, who has taken a loss? I'm not going to say like a loss, like anybody, but who's taken a loss and they don't know what to do with that pain. Like they don't know where to put it. They don't know how to express it. It's still there, but they don't know what to do with it. Like, do you have any type of anything that worked for you that might work for them? Yeah. It's, it's again, like in the Ted talk, it's you go from why to what now. And I ultimately feel that like when you stop with the whys, you know, and you have a plan of action and I feel that plan of action is a being of service. Right. And for me, my, what now started the day after when I woke up and my mother was no longer there, I was in an action plan of finding out what happened and bringing justice for my mother. You know, I was talking to somebody who's, who had a, a sister very close to her who was murdered in arguably the most famous murder trial in the United States in the nineties. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that she said to me was, she's like, I just can't believe your story and that they put you on the witness stand. Mm-hmm. And I was able to protect her children from having to go on the witness stand against their father and this, that, and the other, right. because I just think it's so devastating. And I said, ma'am, you know, to be honest with you, there was no way I was not going to be on the witness stand. Right. I knew what happened. I wanted to tell the story. I wanted justice for my mother. That was my what now. That was how I dealt with it. Like, okay, I'm going to make sure that the man that did this never walks free again. That became my mission. And I think that when you go through these, and I, and this is where I feel that I differ from the vast majority of people is people can go and say, you know, Oh, well, that's easy for you to say, or of course it's easy for you to say, Oh, move past it. Well, I have, I've come through a big gap. And one of the things that's also told in the story is when this happened, both sides of my family abandoned me. My mother's side of the family didn't really want any, didn't want anything to do with me because of all the shit my father pulled. You know, he had molested their daughters during physicals. He was, you know, I came to find out during making the film, you find out all these backstories that, that they were trying to, a year before my father killed my mother, that they were, the Baltimore Police Department was going to arrest him for molesting these girls and they then the girls in their trauma refused to testify right. so that was a tough thing to hear because if that had gone through he wouldn't have been able to kill my mother right. you know so you go through those what if scenarios and things I was like say, that was, was that a scenario you had in your head though that you thought maybe like the, the reason he may have did it because the truth was finally going to come out and she was going to finally figure out who he really was Oh no, she she had already talked to her sister about it. Okay. She denied it. Um, okay. No, I don't think it had anything to do with that. Okay. But when he was arrested, or when they were investigating him, and I had mentioned this to the police officers, or 
or I'm sorry, it had, it had been mentioned by her best friend, who was in the, my mom's best friend, who was in the film. She had told the, you know, Messmore, David Messmore about this. Uh, you know, he spoke to the investigators in Baltimore. They said, we almost had him. You get that son of a bitch, because we don't, we don't doubt that he killed his wife. Yeah. No trouble believing that. Sad as it is, we have no That's trouble. That. So when they did, they were like, yeah, got him, you know, yeah, yeah. justice. Right. And uh, so getting back to what I was saying, mm. I have been through it. So when I talk to somebody and they're like, so you're asking for advice, I feel that I can speak with an authority position on this because of what I have been through. Right. Okay. You take it and you and you devote yourself to being of service. My way of being of service was okay, I'm gonna tell the story to honor my mother's death so it's not in vain, and to be able to change one life. That was my goal. One life, and I would always have these visions when I you know, growing up, even as a kid in Ohio, of like telling the story, making a film accepting an award and saying i did it for this one kid if you're out there watching you are not alone and you will get through this just know that look at me you know and the impact of the film has been tens of thousands of people that have seen it that have gone whoa this is heavy if he's all right i'm gonna be all right 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 and that was my way of being in, of service and obviously using my art to to be of service and to give a gift to the world, which is a murder in Mansfield. Right, right. And to be vulnerable and all those things that we talked about, because that's so important. So right. my advice to anyone is, is, is a long way around here, is that be true to yourself, be authentic, and go for it. And, and it's a great way to heal. <laughs> it really is. The catharsis you get from doing something positive whatever that is i'm not saying go make a film you want to become a kids little league baseball coach and work with kids because you didn't have that childhood you were robbed with from because of x y and z and you want to impact people's lives you want to be a teacher you know you want to be a corrections officer and you want to help you know change the world that way you can do it i think that if anything has proven that movements are the order of the day right right right. and if you see things and you want to impact change go for it yep and but and you gotta so, do it for the right reasons you gotta do it out of love right out of service right when you approach things that way that's when you have that success that's and that's and that's right but and, I, and i'm gonna say that's 100 percent because i had to learn that for myself personally i had to learn that because i always thought i want to tell my story but eh, i just want to tell my story because I feel like my story is something. But um, when I found out that once you once again, being of service, you know, um, I've, I've gone as far as being a crisis text hotline operator, you know, personnel that if somebody's wanting to commit suicide, they want to text somebody, I've opened my phone freely to people that if they want to talk about their situations and stuff like that. So I get exactly what you're saying. Um, I also want to give my audience this uh, clarity. And I think this would probably be the biggest justice to them when I ask you this question. Is he ever coming out? So he was up for parole in, uh, I think it was on October 29th. 
Yeah. I was going to go back to Ohio in October to talk to the parole board because I, so he was up for parole in 2010. Mm-hmm. I actually advocated for his release to the parole board. And this sounds a little nefarious, but I knew there was not a chance in hell he was getting out. There were too many people, but I wanted to curry favor with him to maintain that relationship with him. Mm -hmm. I wanted to make my film. Right, right, right. It was already happening. And yeah, it might be a little sly or whatever, but I knew that if I could be there, and I also genuinely felt that I was at a point, and I wanted to make a point of where I would I have forgiven him, mm-hmm. and come what may, you know, I'm not saying he needs to be released. I'm not saying that he doesn't need to be released. What I'm saying is, is that I have, as the principal victim left, as the son of the victim. I feel this way that I have come through this. And I actually, one of the first things I ever felt, I had a Panasonic GH1 and I filmed all the stuff going to the parole board. And I have all this footage somewhere, which I will eventually do something with. Uh, And I, um, you know, that was, that was the way that I, 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 I dealt with that. So flash forward to then, you know, he doesn't get released, which I knew it wasn't. He was up for parole again, and, and it was my decision. I was going to go back and speak to the parole world. But coronavirus started getting out of control. Mm-hmm. I was in the middle of shooting a film. Ohio became like code purple, which means like stay away. Mm-hmm. I was like, I can't go. I was just getting ready to start a film. I was like, I can't travel back to Ohio for a few days, do this, come back, and we got to explain to Screen Actors Guild why your DP went to a coronavirus hotbed and they came back and gonna be working around your SAG actors and you know not really quarantine or whatever you know because everybody's paranoid about this stuff right right so I didn't go and I just kind of put it on myself like all right if he gets released come what may you know I had to kind of make peace I gave a statement to the prosecutor you know a lot of people's reaction, like my personal friends, close personal friends growing up, they said, you know, when they watched the film, they said, if you, if, if you were ever going to, you know, F your old man in front of the parole board, you just did it by making that film because the way that he trips himself up and everything, it's, it's interesting. Right, right. You know, Dr. Phil and I talk about this and I talk about, like I said, the TED talk and things, but it's very apparent in the film when people watch it. Mm-hmm. But long story short, they did not grant his release. They gave him another five years. So he will be eligible again for parole. So what are we, 2021? So like 2025, I believe, uh, when he'll be 82. Now, I hope he's alive and kicking. The one thing I can take away is my old man still has all his hair. And he's, in, for somebody who has eaten crap food for the last 30 years in prison, he's doing all right. Yeah, that's <laughs> crazy. So like, okay, I don't know about my mom's genetics, but Genetically, that's a good thing. Right. And, and, you know, um, when that time comes, you know, if he's ever released, like, is is that going to bother you? Or you have already found your closure to the point where it's like, you know what? He suffered and he's going to, he's going to still going to have to deal with that in the afterlife when that time comes. Yeah. I mean, for whatever that's worth, whatever the afterlife is for us, Mm -hmm. right? 
I, uh, for me, yeah, I mean, so one of my favorite top five movies as well is the Shawshank Redemption, which is filmed in Mansfield. Okay. That prison is in Mansfield. And I did some stuff for my own story there uh, recently. There's a character named Brooks and Brooks has been incarcerated for like 50 years and gets released and has to deal with the world. And he has ultimately ends up hanging himself. And I thought about my father getting released. And I actually was even delving into this in a scripted series about my life, like a television series, which I'm working on. And that's Bible's done. The, the pitch deck is done. The, you know, the pilot is done, all this stuff is done. Right of potentially like what happens if his father gets released and he has to deal, the son has to deal with all of that, right? Uh, but I thought like, okay, like technology when my father went in <laughs> was like a cell phone was a briefcase. Now right, it's right, a computer right. in your hand that can track everything. You don't even have to have a credit card. You don't even have to have a wallet anymore. You can just take right. five stuff. The world has just changed so much. Now my father is very good with computers and he is very technical, which is a cool thing. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how he would be able to function in the, the world outside. You know, Dave Vesmore is very, was very concerned that he would try to come after me and harm me for right, right, right. testifying. He has a vengeful streak in him and that he, you know, is very, uh, you know, they're like very vengeful and would want to harm me or my family. And I was more, I'm less concerned about myself. And I've had girlfriends I've dated over the years that have been so paranoid about this. And I was like, what are we going to do? What are you going to do? That's crazy. <laughs> Absolutely nothing I could do. I think right, it's right, right. You know? Uh, and, you know, I'm not going to live in that fear. Okay. Right. So, uh, you know, I was more concerned. I was not concerned about myself at all. But I was concerned about like my family, like my adoptive parents and my, and I talked to them about this when it was up for parole. And, you know, I was like, I'm concerned. They're like, no, don't worry about us. I was like, yeah, but like, if you, you can't leave the state and you want to hurt me, what's the most convenient? Go after the family that adopted me, even though they're like, well, he doesn't have anything against us. I was like, he is not right in his mind anyways. We already know that. Right, right, <laughs> so, right. Uh, that was my main concern with everything. Okay. But yeah, he's not gonna get. He's not. He's not a parole until, like I said, twenty twenty five, and we'll we'll deal with that when it comes. Yeah. You know. And like I said, I think my audience right now is probably applauding. I'm pretty sure they're happy, because that's just like I said. I know that my audience. They're just very like the audience I have. They're just very like they're nosy. I and I hate to say that, but my my audience is nosy. Like they always ask me questions after the podcast. Um, and it's my fault because I do kind of give them the opportunities to ask me questions behind scenes that they may want me to ask, you know, they want me to ask the next person. Um, but I know that's going to be one of those questions after hearing that story is like, but is he ever getting out? Because we've always seen those stories where we thought for one, this person could never get out of jail. And they just, it's either an early release earlier than expected, or they actually survived to the point where they're like 90 and they're just like, yeah, let them go. They're 90, put them back out there. But not realizing that even at those ages, people are still able to think and still try and still attempt. You know, we think like we kind of undermine a person being like over 80 years old. And I'm like, 
we've heard of people murdering over 80 years old, you know, because it's timing, you know, it's about timing and, and that part, you know, so, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm very happy to hear that you're not living in that fear. I'm, I'm happy about that because I'm, I'm so happy about that because, you know, I always hear about this. Oh, I always wonder if, and no, you're living your life, you're doing your thing, you know, from hearing your story on clubhouse it immediately, I said, I got to go, gotta, I got to get this guy. I got, I got, I got to hear his story because I want to hear deeper, but for me being a filmmaker, I watched the film before I heard the story. Usually I would talk to you about it before I go watch it. But yeah. I was so eager. I was like, no, 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 no. I got to watch this. And then you said Hulu. I love Hulu. Don't ask me why. I love Hulu. I don't know why. I don't know why. It's it's me and Hulu have this connection. Maybe I might have a film up there at some point. You know, I don't know. But I love Hulu. Hulu has got me through some times because I also have a Sprint as my phone provider. So we get it for free. So, <laughs> yeah. So Sprint customers get Hulu for free. So. There's a little gym there, so I'm mobile, so maybe I get it for free too. Yeah, if, if you have a Sprint account, um, all you have to do is I I don't remember the website. If you Google it, you can just Google Oh Sprint Hulu, and it'll take you to an, you just put in your phone number. They'll send you a text, and then you sign up right on your phone, and boom, there you go. So you'll have a free subscription there. Oh, that's a gym I just dropped. I hope Hulu cuts me a check at some point, or maybe even Sprint, which is now T-Mobile. Yeah, look at that, I'm just selling stuff. I'm selling stuff here, guys. Um, but no, I really do appreciate, you know, you coming by. I like to say, I like to call this the house. This is the safe house. You know, I like people to come in and just kick back. You're already kicking back. So you get exact, you get the, you get the drift. You're kicking back, feet up, you know, um, you're always welcome to come or, you know, come back at any point. You know, if there's any projects you're working on in the future and you want to talk about it by all means, after we talked about this film, we're going to leave it here. That's, this is where we're going to leave it at. So the next time you come back, let's we talk even about dealt with the camera gear. We didn't even right. talk. About right. Lot. And I, I was just like, you know what? Because it's like, if if we go into that, I, I, I just know where it's going to go. We're going to be here for another two to three hours. So what I'm going to do. I do want to say one thing before you, and you can cut this in. No, go ahead. No, please go ahead. Say, say what you got to say. So being a DP and then being on camera. Mm -hmm. So Barbara had two DPs because one, her normal DP, Gary Griffin, couldn't come in until the second day of filming. So Tony Hardman was the first guy. Right. And he, he, he actually ended up being my neighbor in Silver Lake, like literally right down the street. So the after eye, right. film, I would run into a Trader Joe's and stuff. So funny. I never right. met that before, right? Um, but I developed this shorthand with those guys because her style is cinema verite, right? Okay. Single camera right in the moment. So I would be like, if I was going to say something like heavy, I knew it was coming, like based upon what they're asking me, because I don't know, I've told my story five million times, it must seem like. Right, so right, I'm very right. well versed. I would do, like, I had this little thing, I would put the, my hand next to my lap, like under the table, where I would be like, like, like this way, that way, like to signal them, like, okay, I'm about ready to say something that's going to be heavy. It's going to be for a great shot. So get ready to move, to swing that camera around. That's funny. That's funny as hell. Because <laughs> like I said, only filmmakers are going to know that. Like for real, for real. Um, You know, we definitely talked about you were going to be in New York, you know, at some point. Yeah. So, you know, I, I definitely would love to, you know, at, at some point we can kind of link up in New York. You know what I mean? And, you know, maybe we, you know, can talk camera gear 
at that point as well, you know, bring out what we'll maybe could do like a little small tutorial for some students on, you know, on my YouTube oh, channel. Cause well, I do I tutorials as well. Abroad, I'll have a C70 with me most likely. You know, I won't have that, but I might have this, uh, what is that? Yashika D and I might bring out my Pentax, you know, and we just talk about film camera. Um, but I definitely would love, you know, just to kind of, just like I said, just meet up with you and just kind of, you know, talk about, you know, some stuff and then, you know, create is create, man. Like that's where it all comes down to. Um, so anybody on my YouTube channel, you know, looking at this right now, you know, we will have Kalia Landry back again, you know, but this time we're going to talk some camera stuff, man, because, you know, a lot, you know, we talked about the cameras that you're going to get your hands on. I don't want to tell a secret because I'd rather them just find out for themselves. But you also have worked with a camera already that people are loving. We'll, we can say that uh, the C70. So, you know, I'll, before I end it, how do you like that camera? I love it. I just, uh, like I, I said, I've shot my, I'm doing a pilot right now for a production company that I, about a show that I'm hosting actually, which kind of goes in line with my brand, which I'm rebranding for 2021, getting the YouTube channel back up and running, the podcast moving past mm -hmm. murder. The show will be the same name because my goal has always been as a, as a creator, I want to be my generation's John Walsh. Right. That's always been my thing. Uh, so I'm moving in that direction. So I have yet to use the camera. I'm actually gonna use it to shoot a reality show probably next week, okay. but I uh, have yet to use it in a professional environment for myself, but the, the color profile is beautiful. The, the way that it shoots, the integration of the buttons, the built-in ND filters, the super 35 frame, 1K, you know, 4K, 120, 10-bit 422 mm -hmm. is sensational. Uh, you know, none of that 420 DSLR nonsense, <laughs> right. good color, good bit depth. It's not raw, right. but you know, you stream it out to a, to a recorder, they're recording ProRes, like a mm. Blackmagic Video Assist, the new ones that do HDR, all that. It's a beautiful image and it's a camera that you can grab and go small batteries, boom, put the lens on it. You need the RF adapter because it's, it's a, it's an RF mount. RF mount yep. You put your, uh, you know, put your, put your EF lenses on it. It works perfectly. There's even a speed booster that Canon makes to make right. it a full frame from Super 35, which I might get if it's in stock. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it, it's a fantastic camera. Grab and go. Smaller than a C300 Mark III, but the same sensor. Nice. See, see, look at that. We just, look, we just sold you guys a lot of stuff. So... Like I said, you know, maybe when you're in New York, maybe we can kind of talk about it. I'll maybe can do like, you know, a quick, you know, yeah. like a quick overview of the, you know, everything you might just talk about it. I think that'd be very dope, you know, at that point. Oh, I love um, it. You know, so can you let everybody know where they can reach out to you at? Like where they can find Yeah, you? so I'm on, so all my social media is at Call Your Landry. So Instagram, at Call Your Landry, Twitter, Facebook. <clears throat> uh, my podcast is called Moving Past Murder. It is, uh, we're just launching the first, you know, by the time you guys are watching this, we've launched the first couple episodes, which is my backstory. There will be interviews with other people uh, who have gone through traumatic circumstances revolving around murder. Eric will probably be on our show as well. And uh, I would, love to, I would cool. love to go over there and talk. Yeah, yeah. definitely. definitely. Yeah. It'd be cool. So uh, yeah, that's, that's me at Call Your Landry. Find me on the interwebs. Uh, website is www.callyourlandry.com. All right. And, and you can find me on the TED website. Yeah. Call your Landry and watch my TED Talk. Yeah, I, I love TED Talks. So anybody that loves TED Talks, please definitely go check that out. 
Um, what you might have heard here on this podcast, I guarantee you're going to probably hear 10 times more in-depth stuff on that TED Talk. So you guys definitely should go check that out. But you guys already know what it is. You know where you're at. Check me out, Mr. I Am Digital, or at Digitally Interrupted. You can stream this or you can listen to this on all streaming platforms. Kalia, I definitely, man, I appreciate you coming by. And like I said, at any point in time, when, when you're ready to come back, when it's time, when those projects are done, come back to the house, man. Let's talk about it. Let's promote it. Let's, you know, let's, let's inform everybody. All right. So, wow. all right, guys, check you guys out next week. And, uh, you know, next Thursday is, uh, who's actually coming up next Thursday. Uh, that's not a surprise. I always love surprises. So we'll definitely, uh, we'll definitely talk to you guys later. You guys have a good one and peace. You are now listening to the number one podcast. You have been digital. Interrupted. Oh. Oh. I am digital. Oh. Digital.